So 1 Peter chapter 4, the entire chapter, hear the word of the Lord. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trouble trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I began last week by talking about one of the most common objections to Christianity that I find when I'm out talking with people. And that most common objection to Christianity is Christians and uh, poor behavior among Christians. That's often what I hear as the initial objection to Christianity, the way some Christians have misbehaved. But I want to point out the other side of that coin, or, or the positive aspect as well. One of the most attractive things about Christianity, and in fact, the initially attractive thing to Christianity, are Christians. Christian lifestyles, and many people, we could say, Most people come to the Christian faith not by encountering in a vacuum the truths of Christianity, but rather by meeting a Christian and by being captured by some aspect of that Christian's life that is different. 
People uh, meet Christians before they meet the truths of Christianity. And some people come to the Christian faith by in a vacuum by themselves, somehow coming across through the Bible or in some other way, the truths of the Christian faith, and they find those truths to be compelling and they believe them. But usually it comes through the door of a Christian friend or a Christian relative. And so this is the other side. Uh, while poor Christian behavior is, a, is a, an obstacle to people coming to faith, Christian behavior that is according to God's Word is a, an attraction. It is a compelling argument for the truths that we preach. And this is one of the main themes of Peter. Uh, Peter, if you go back, for example, to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, this is the summary statement of what Peter is saying to us. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And that theme is the theme that, that Peter works in various ways through the next chapters. And he's continuing to work that theme in this chapter 4. And he says to us, if you want to see how this develops, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, he says that we as Christians should live according to the will of God. And then verses 7 to 11, that we should love one another. And then in verses 12 to 19, that we should rejoice even in suffering. So let's see how he develops this theme, this theme of Christian, Christian living. Now, he again calls us to follow Christ. And we've seen this throughout this letter. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The same way of thinking. Now he's calling us to, call, to follow Christ in Christ's way of thinking. Thinking about what? Well, if we look back to the last chapter that we were studying, we find that it's how Christ was thinking about suffering, and particularly unfair, unjust suffering. For example, if you look at chapter 3, uh, verse 17, here he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then immediately he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then he picks up in chapter 4, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mentality, the same way of thinking, the same way of thinking about what? About suffering, but not just suffering, unjust suffering, suffering for being associated with Christ. So, and, and, and the argument here seems to be this. By the way, verse 1 and verse 6 are challenging verses, but the idea seems to be this. He says this, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, what does that mean? Because obviously many people have suffered in the flesh and they haven't ceased from sin. But in the context, what he seems to be saying is this, If you arm yourselves with this mentality that I am willing to suffer unjustly for being a Christian, you are demonstrating that in your life you have made a definitive break with sin. Because someone who's willing to do that uh, is not just going along with the flow. Someone who's willing to say, I am willing to be, to be mistreated and to endure for being a Christian, I am demonstrating in my life, if that's my mentality following Christ, that I'm demonstrating that there has been 
a definitive break with sin in my life. And if we go on, we see that he's talking about that definitive break with sin in my life. Quitting sin. And we heard a testimony today, didn't we? A wonderful testimony about God giving one of our, one of our own here the power after 20 years of being entrapped in sin to say, no, I'm ceasing. Uh, and he, he, he walked away from that in freedom. And that's what he's saying. Arm yourselves with this mentality. Uh, and, and here we see this break. Verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So this is this definitive transition from no longer living like that, but rather transitioning to living according to the will of God. And he says, there's been enough time. Right? There's been enough time. Look at verse 3. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles, the unbelieving nations, want to do. And he goes on and he describes these excesses of the nations. And I think you will see that these are not things that have passed off the scene. Uh, Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Basically, excess in terms of food, drink, and sexual relations. Now, is that something just from the first century? Or is that how the nations continue to live? He's saying... You've spent enough time doing that. You've spent enough time. In your old life, it's sufficient. Whatever time you spent living like that, that's enough. And I think all of us would say, no, actually, it was too much, right? But he's saying it's enough. There's this time for a definitive break. Uh, that time is past. And uh, rather, rather, you're to break with it to live according to the will of God. But he says, beware, because if you do break with that lifestyle... People will be surprised at you. People will be surprised that you're no longer going along with them. And he calls it what? In the same flood of debauchery, flood of dissipation. And maybe some of you have experienced that. As you came to Christ in the past and and some of these habits, by God's grace, began to, to fall away from your life, maybe you recall that. What's wrong with you? What's happened to you? Aren't you any fun anymore? Why don't you want to go along with us anymore? Don't you care about us? We thought we were friends. And it can even get to be where they malign you, they insult you for not going along. And because tragically, that's all they know. That's the only kind of lifestyle, the only kind of diversion, the only kind of fun that they know. And they're, they're surprised that you don't go along with them. But there are some sobering things. He says in verse 5, it's very sobering. He says... Actually, they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So uh, that's a sobering thought as we think about our old lifestyles, if we think about the lifestyles of our, our friends. It's a sobering thought that they, everyone, will give an account to the one who is about to judge the living and the dead. But there is a, a, a cheerful, a cheering thought as well. And this is verse 6, another difficult verse. But it says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Who are these dead who had the gospel preached to them? I think the proper way to read this is this. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. That is to say, people who have died. People you know. Uh, people in your church. People that, uh, that have passed on. And in the first century, there was some concern about Jesus hasn't come back yet, and what about these, these Christians who have already died? Are they okay? 
And Peter is saying to, to, to us, they're okay because they had the gospel preached to them while they were still living. They're dead now, but they had the gospel preached to them when they were living. And yes, they were judged in the flesh the way people are. That is, they were mistreated, they were insulted, maybe some of them were even persecuted. So they were, they were judged according to human standards by other humans, but they live unto God if they heard the gospel when they were still living and if they believed that gospel. So there's a sobering thought and there's also a cheer, cheering thought for us. Now, um, in verse 7, once again, he's talking about the time. He said, the time has already passed uh, to live like the Gentiles. Uh, sufficient time to live like the nations. That, that's past. That's past. What time is it now? And he says in verse 7, it's the end. The end has come. The end of all things is at hand. And this is the consistent repetition, the consistent posture of the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, it announces that the end is at hand. Now, some people take that and they say, see, the Bible is full of errors. Uh, it said that the end was at hand, and here we are, 2,000 years later, and it hasn't ended yet. See, they didn't know what they were talking about. Um, however, the point is not so much a calendar point. The point is this. God has done everything necessary for the end to come except bringing the end. In His plan, He has executed everything that needs to happen except bringing it to a conclusion. Think about, some of you are familiar with what's called the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed, is an, it wasn't from the Apostles, but it's an ancient summary of the Christian faith. And it says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then it says, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And then it reviews the things that He did. And I want to ask you whether these things are past or future, okay? It says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Has it already happened? Past, right? Born of the Virgin Mary. Is that past? Okay. Um, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Okay. Was crucified. Okay. Died. Was buried. Then there's that difficult, curious phrase, he descended into hell, but whatever that might mean, we'll talk about that some other time. Is that past? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Where are we? Okay. Crucified, died, and buried, descended hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. Okay. Uh, ascended into heaven. Uh, sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. All that's past. Okay, there's one more thing it mentions. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. There's only one element left. That's why the end of everything is at hand. Because everything else has been done. There's only one more act. And that's the conclusion of everything. That's the posture of the New Testament. And if you were to ask Peter, Hey Peter, how long do you think this is going to take? He would have said, I don't know. And in fact, in Second Peter... He addresses that question because the scoffers were saying, ha, 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 everything continues just as it had. Nothing ever happens. And he says, you know, with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day. And a day is like a thousand years. Okay, we're at 2,000 years. So how many days have passed? Two. Two days. Okay, does that seem like a long time to wait? No, he's saying it's not so much a question of chronology, calendar time. It's a question of of what God is doing in the universe, and He's done everything. 
except bring it to an end. So the end is near. That's all that needs to be done. Therefore, therefore, because the end is at hand, that should inform how we live. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. For the sake of your prayers. The hardest thing for me in praying is concentrating. Controlling my mind so that I can focus on prayer. When I'm distracted, I have trouble praying. And all of a sudden, I'll I'll be praying and there my mind will be off doing something else. I need self-control. I need sobriety in my way of thinking in order to focus on prayer. And then he says, above all, above all. This is the summary statement of this section. Above all, love, uh, keep loving one another earnestly. Keep one loving one another, one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. The, the motivating, uh, motivation here for loving each other earnestly is because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, the scholars debate who sins. They say, does this mean that you're covering over the other person's sin by loving them? Or does this mean that you're covering over your own sin by being loving? And I think they've maybe gone down a a needless detour by asking that question. I think the statement, as it comes from Proverbs and it's repeated here by Peter, is a general statement. What is the effect of love in a community? He's talking about loving one another. What's the effect of love in a community? The effect of love is to overpower sin. It's not to cover it up like to sweep it under the rug or to ignore it but it's to overwhelm it. And that's what Christ did for us, didn't He? He covered over, but in a more more literal way, He did cover over our sins by covering them with His perfect life and with His blood on the cross. He He didn't sweep them under the rug. He dealt with them to give us forgiveness and freedom from our sins, freedom from guilt before God. And we can't atone for each other's sins, but in loving each other, we do. We do overwhelm them. I don't know if you've ever been in a community that was characterized by poisonous attitudes towards one another, uh, a dysfunctional sort of situation. You know what happens in that sort of situation? Sins are multiplied. Everybody's sins come out. They're their own sins and everybody else's sins. That, that brings out sin. But if you've been in a community, a family, a group, a church, a Bible study, whatever it might be, where love is the predominant attitude one toward another, sins get get taken care of. Sins get dealt with. Sins get pushed down. Sins get covered over. And sins get forgiven because love overpowers them. Now, um, this is what he says in general, and then he gives some specifics. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You will find in the New Testament there are examples of the need for hospitality so that the gospel could go forth. If you read, for example, like 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, 2 and 3 John particularly, uh, it talks about hospitality towards traveling evangelists, traveling missionaries. The gospel went forth through hospitality. Uh, and because there weren't places to stay. So an evangelist comes through town, 
And where does he stay? He stays with other Christians and, and, and is helped to go on to the next place. But I don't think that's what it's talking about here, that sort of hospitality, uh, visiting strangers and helping them, although that could be included. But he says, show hospitality to what? To one another. Where did the churches meet in those days? They met in wherever they could, but most likely they met in homes. So in order for the church to have a place to meet, people had to open their homes. And he says, open your homes to one another for meetings. Open your homes to one another for meals and do so without grumbling. Now, if you think it's easy to show hospitality without grumbling, that shows that you've never shown hospitality. (laughs) Because when people come into your home, they mess it up. They break things, they make it dirty, and they, they ruin your family routines. And every family has its routine. This is the right way to do things, and then somebody else comes in and they don't do it that way. Uh, that's what happens when we show hospitality, so it is a temptation to grumble. Open your church or your home up to the youth group sometime, okay? And, and do it without grumbling. Uh, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now. We have, a, uh, we have a ballroom here in which to meet. I'm very thankful for this ballroom. And then people ask me, well, where do you meet during the week? I say, well, Starbucks over here or cafe down the street or uh, I can meet you at the benches at the beach or wherever it might be. And, and that's great that we have various places to meet. But I hope that we will become a place of hospitality because it's great to meet each other over coffee at Starbucks. That's great. But we don't get to know each other uh, well until we are in each other's homes. That's where we really get to, to share together as we open our homes to one another. And I, I, I really hope that this church, and I've already seen that, by the way. I've been in a number of homes, had some of you in our home. I, I, I've seen that some, and I've seen how the relationship deepen as we are in each other's homes. And I, I hope that this will become more and more uh, a church of hospitality. Where do you meet? The answer would be, well, on Sundays, we meet in Star Ballroom, but we're always meeting in each other's homes, and we do it without grumbling. Now, then he goes on to say this, as you received a gift, use it to serve one another. And here he's talking about what we find in the the New Testament are called spiritual gifts, gifts of the Spirit, uh, and they are given to us as, as sacred trusts from God. They're not our own. Uh, we are, given them, uh, uh, we are uh, given them as managers of these gifts. He says, as good stewards of God's very grace. So they're entrusted to us by God, but they are for others. They are for others. And he says, if you have a gift, not if you, as you have a gift, as each believer has received at least a gift from God, a spiritual gift that is useful for others, Put it to use. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. And then he says, there are basically two categories. There there are various lists in the New Testament about spiritual gifts. You find some in Corinthians and Romans. And here's a very stripped down list. Two categories. There are, in general, speaking gifts. And there are, in general, serving gifts. And that's what he says. Uh, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So in general, speaking gifts, serving gifts, 
not a hermetic categories. There may be somebody who speaks, has speaking gifts, but can also serve. And somebody saying, in these categories, think about these categories. Well, the gift of encouragement, for example, would be a, a speaking gift, wouldn't it? Um, the gift of helping would be a serving gift, wouldn't it? Uh, the gift of singing would be a speaking gift. The gift of teaching would be a, a speaking gift. Uh, the gift of hospitality would be a serving gift, for example. And we can look at the various gifts and see how they tend to fall in one of these categories. And you might be, you might be one who is gifted with, with ability to, to speak encouragement or counsel or evangelization or singing or teaching, whatever that might be. And, and, and so what you should, should you do? Use it. Use it for the benefit of others. Or you say, no, I really I don't want to be doing that. I'm not gifted in that way to speak, but I, but I do like to prepare meals. I do like to, to visit hospitals. I do like to, to, uh, to sit with people. I do like to, to carry chairs. I, I, I do like to, uh, to receive people and give them a hug when they come in. Uh, serving gifts. Now, how can you find out what this gift is of yours? Back in the... 70s and 80s, they may still be sort of popular, but there were these spiritual gift inventories. How many people have taken a spiritual gift inventory, right? I did that. And um, mine was hilarious. Because my number one gift came out as singing. Now, um, that's not my gift, okay? But then I went back and I said, how did this happen? And then it said, you know, it had questions like, do you sing in the shower? You know, do you, do you like singing in your devotional time? Do you pick up a hymnal and use it? Yes, I love singing, but it's not my gift. I love it, though. I love music and I love singing, but I don't do it publicly. It would not build other people up. Okay, I do it with the congregation. Okay, so these are not infallible, but there is an infallible way to discover what your gift is. Do you see a need then do something about it. Do you see a need? Do something about it and you'll find what you're good at. Try it. You see a need? Try to do something about it. And you might find that you're gifted to that. Or you might find that you're not. So you see another need. And you try that as well. You might say, hey, I don't see so-and-so here today. Maybe you have the gift of encouragement and it just needs to be untapped. So, call up so-and-so and say, Hey, I missed you today. How are you doing? Is there anything I can pray for you about? And you might discover that you've been, been deeply gifted as an encourager. Or, or you might see uh, somebody, a neighbor, and say, You know, I, I don't think that person knows anything about the Bible. You might knock on that person's door and say, Hey, I'm a Christian. I just wanna, I'm your neighbor and I have some cookies for you here. And I just want to know if there's anything I can pray for you about. And, and, uh, and maybe that will open up an opportunity to talk to that person about the gospel. You might discover that you're gifted in evangelization. Or you might discover that uh, it's not so much with adults but with kids. You might say, you know, I notice we have some kids and Sandy goes out and teaches kids and could I participate in that as well? I see that Sandy's out every week and she might want to hear her favorite preacher once in a while. So, so uh, Sandy trained me. Maybe, maybe I could do that as well and actually one of us is doing that already. Or, or you know, we need, we need help with youth. We've got a few youth and we want to we wanna reach our youth and we already have somebody who said, hey, we want to do that. So that's great. See a need? Jump in. Try it. It may work. It may not. But if it doesn't work, try something else. Do you see a need? 
go for it. That's how you discover what you're gifted at. Now, um, the result of this, if we use our gifts as we are to, if we speak, we should speak God's words, not our own. If we serve, we should do it in God's strength, not our own. Otherwise, we will wear out very quickly. But the end of that, if those who speak, speak God's words, if those who serve, serve with God's strength, the result will be that God is glorified, right? Because if that which is spoken is God's word, who gets the glory? God does. It's His word. If we serve and we serve according to God's strength, then who gets the glory? God does because it's strength. So that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Sounds like a conclusion there. Amen. Uh, But then he goes on and says one more thing, but it's actually a repetition of what he's already said. And he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that is coming upon you. As though something strange were happening to you. As we said last week, the Christians were being mildly mistreated at this point in Asia Minor, but Peter was preparing them for much worse to come. And he says, don't be surprised when it comes as if something strange were happening to you, but rather rejoice. And he gives us some reasons to rejoice here. He says, first of all, by the way, if you bring suffering upon yourself, make sure it's for being a Christian and not for being a, a, well, he mentions various things, an evildoer, a murderer, thief, or even a busybody. Don't bring suffering on yourself for being a lawbreaker. If you, if you bring suffering upon yourself, make sure it's because you're a Christian. But if you do, he says, you can rejoice. You can rejoice. And he gives us some reasons why we can rejoice. Look at, look at verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You can rejoice because your suffering is Christian suffering. It's identifying you deeply with Jesus Christ. And you can rejoice because there is glory to come later. But not only that, he says in verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests on you. Not only glory later, but glory now as the spirit is upon you. And then also he says you can glorify God. In verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, in that name of Christ. And there's one other thought, which is a sobering thought, and he ends with this. He puts Christian suffering under the category of God's judgment because he's already said that God will judge the living and the dead. And he says the time for judgment to begin at the household of God, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then he quotes from the Old Testament, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What's he saying here? This, this word scarcely um, means with difficulty. And, and the point seems to be this. Look, if it's difficult... For the Christian in this life, if the, if the Christian suffers in this life and, and comes to salvation through difficulties in life, what about those who are outside the gospel? It's even worse for them. So this is a sobering thought. So those who are, are mistreating us, actually, who's getting the short end of the stick? Who's getting the worst part of the deal? It is not we. Because we, even though through difficulties, will be saved by Jesus Christ, They've excluded themselves from that salvation. So if anybody's to be pitied, if anybody's to be pitied, it's not Christians who are suffering, even unjustly. 
It's those who are causing that unjust suffering because if the righteous with difficulty is saved, what will become of the ungodly, the sinner, those who are outside of the gospel? And so rather than, than, than responding in the way they're treating us, we should respond with pity and with love and so glorify God. And the final thing, verse 19, here's the summary. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's, that's a comforting thought that if we suffer as Christians, we're suffering according to God's will. Even that suffering is God's will for us. What should we do? Keep doing good and entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. Do you recall that Jesus did just that on the cross? What did he say? Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, don't hold this against them because they know not what they do. And we're called to follow in Jesus' footsteps, putting it all together because God in Christ suffered as one of us, we can suffer as one of His. And we can even rejoice. I had the possibility of visiting a communist dictatorship once and getting to teach the Bible in that communist dictatorship with permission from the government, our government, their government, so everything was above board. But it was distressing to be in that land and to see a people that had been so beaten down over decades, and to see how little joy there was in the streets, how little happiness, how little fellowship one with another. It just seemed like a beaten down society. But I found joy in one place, and it was in the Christian church. I found joy there. Now, they were suffering the same want that the people were suffering outside. And they were suffering additional problems for being Christians because they were not supported but rather opposed by the government. But that was the one place I found joy. And so, speaking of a compelling testimony, an attractive Christian lifestyle, there it is. Even in the midst of a sorrowful land, the Christians rejoicing in the midst of their suffering. May others find us and our lives as lives that are according to God's will, as lives that are characterized by love for one another, and lives that are characterized by joy, even in the midst of suffering. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this call once again to follow Christ who in His love gave His life for us, suffering unjustly, to cover over our sins. And we pray, O God, that we could entrust our lives to You, no matter what we have to suffer, to love one another and so cover over each other's sins. And so, show the world, show the world what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ, that they might see the truth of the Gospel and glorify You. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.